It's time for your weekly trip inside the ropes and behind the scenes of the Australian golf industry. Welcome to another episode of the Australian Golf Show with Tiffany Cherry and Mark Allen. Jim Ferry was a five-time amateur winner of the New South Wales Open on Beldham in 1972. Tony Gresham in 1975, Rick Kulax in 2006, and Ben Eccles in 2015. And in 2022, the Golf Challenge New South Wales Open has been won by another amateur. Just the sixth time it's happened, Harrison Crow, 20 years of age, from the St Michael's Golf Club, the number one amateur prospect in the country. Winner of the New South Wales Amateur in Feb. He won the Australian Master of Amateurs as well. He's a two-time Vic Amateur title winner. Tied for 38th here last year. He spoke about the nerves after day two last year and how he wanted to overcome them this year. And he certainly did that. Just one bogey in 54 holes of golf. What a performance from that young man. And you will do well to remember that name. Great to have you join us, Tiffany Cherry, alongside Mark Allen. And Mark, I just want to say, before we get to our first guest, geez, yeah. there's a lot of people talking about the Marco's Masterclass. I'll tell you what, I, I played with, <laughs> I played nine holes with a friend of mine I haven't seen from Perth. He's finally been let out. Yeah, yeah. And everyone, we know that everyone's playing really well. He comes from Perth. And, uh, and he hit the ball and he turned to me and he said, Marco's Masterclass. <laughs> Seriously, it's improved my game. No end. So thank you very much. So anyway, that's at the tail end of the show. But first up, Great to have join us, Anova Castrin. He's not from WA, but a young man who's taking golf by storm in Australia, 20 years of age. He's an amateur, and on the weekend, he won the New South Wales Open at Concord. Outstanding play. Congratulations to Harrison Crow, who joins us on the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Harrison, is it has it settled down? Is it is you know all the hype around what you managed to do um, last night, and obviously the celebrations? But yeah, how's your head? Uh, a bit sore this morning, um, or this afternoon as well, uh, to be honest. But uh, hasn't probably hasn't quite set in just yet. It was it was quite hectic, I guess, yesterday afternoon, um, off straight off the golf course. Um, obviously, a lot of photos, some interviews, and kind of run around everywhere. Didn't really feel like I just had time to really process it. And then I don't think I had much time to process it last night either. <laughs> straight out. Couple of years, <laughs> Harrison. Where are you put all the trophies? Is what I want to know. A master yes. of the amateur. You've won a Victorian amateur. You've won a New South Wales amateur, and now you've won one of the most famous golf tournaments in the country. The New South Wales Open is is a big one. The Kelnagel Trophy is yours. What are you doing, mate? You're gonna have to put an East Wing on the house or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a, I got a little um little trophy cabinet in my room at the moment, but uh, gonna try and gonna try and clean out all the old stuff and if uh, any more new ones coming in just gonna keep them nice and clean now the big news is harrison that you've just pulled out of the south australian amateur classic at royal adelaide does this mean that you are finally turning pro uh no no not yet <laughs> oh. um i just flight was supposed to be nine o'clock this morning and i wouldn't have been in any state um and just kind of needed a week a week of downtime to kind of let, let things settle down uh got the australian amateur next week um, and I think after, I think it's also gives me a week to kind of talk to my team around me and coach parents and just to kind of kind of see where we go from here. Harrison, I want to talk about that Australian Open at Cranbourne uh, in a tick, but before we do, 
Tell us about your last round. I mean, the tournament, the New South Wales Open, it was shortened to three rounds. Um, a nervous wait, I imagine, from Friday to Sunday, trying to work out what you're going to do. Concord looked pretty good on the TV, considering how much rain they had. But you come out and you birdie one, two, and three. What were you feeling like, you know, when you were hitting balls warming up? Did you expect to start like that? Or did it just come from nowhere? Uh, I was probably more nervous, to be quite honest, the night before. Well, the whole day before, you have so much to think about. And then the night before, and then once I got to the golf course, it actually wasn't too bad because it was just kind of like I just want to get it started mm. and get it underway. Um, so I wasn't really nervous. Actually, I wasn't as nervous as I thought I would be on the first tee. So I really just try to play really aggressive and confident. And then to kind of come out of the blocks like that in those first three holes, it was just like settled me down a lot. Um, and couldn't have asked for a better start, really. Mm. You had one blemish in, in the three rounds. It was obviously reduced because of the rain. How does that round and that tournament rank in terms of your game? You've obviously won a lot of other tournaments, but... Uh, like, it's a different kind of, completely different situation playing in pro events and being in contention. Uh, I put myself in contention last year and the nerves were kind of overbearing almost for the, mm-hmm. the weekend for myself. So you play an amateur golf and you kind of playing against the same people uh, each event. But you, get, you get really comfortable, especially if you're playing well. And then to kind of get out on pro events, the, the it's a different kind of pressure. So to kind of go out there this week, um, blemish-free for the first two rounds and back up the same score was pretty awesome. To like, It was probably the best ball striking week that I've had ever. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I think I maybe missed three or four greens for the whole week for the three rounds um, and a few fairways. And it was just never looked like making bogeys, never looked like dropping shots until yesterday when I made a pretty soft bogey, to be honest. But <laughs> no, it was, um, it was up there. Tell me this, Harrison. There was a chip out. I think it was on the 15th hole. I caught all the action late last night. I watched the replay. And yeah. it looked like you were trying to hit this huge snap hook and the commentators were scratching their head going, what's going on here? I was scratching my head. I was thinking, what are you doing, kid? And then somehow you found a different way of standing under this branch and it just all crystallised, oh, this is the way to go. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the putt for Birdie Horseshoe, I couldn't believe how that missed. That was a joke. But what was going through your mind there when you were trying to hit – well, you're trying to trying to work out what you could do under that tree. Yeah, I was trying to figure out the shot that I could hit because I didn't really give me a normal stance. But if I aim really far right, I could miss the tree behind me and try to hood like yeah. uh, hood the face and hook it. And I was set to hit the shot, and then I took the club a little bit too far outside and smacked the tree. And I was like, <laughs> kind of woke me up a bit, being like, just chip it out and just wedge it close. And I did everything but hold the putt. But it was uh, it was a good putt. I think think that was the that could have been the tournament there that shot. To be quite honest, looking back at it now. So we've got the Australian Open coming up at Cranbourne Golf Club. It's not like a New South Wales Open a four round tournament where the best player wins. You've actually got to beat someone in each round. You've got to qualify first. Have you got a different strategy for playing match play than you do for a four rounder? Uh, it's actually seventy two holes this year for the Australian Amateur. Oh, there's no match play this year. No, they changed it. They changed it last year. So last year was the first time I had a seventy-two holes. So I mean, honestly, my game suits match play a right. lot more. So I've been the the real sort of challenge for me is trying to take the mind the mindset that I have uh, for match play into stroke play, 
So that, that's been honestly the biggest grind for me for the last six to 12 months, trying to keep that mindset that I have in match play and transfer it over to stroke play. Mm. Um, just match play like super aggressive and they just don't, I don't let up at times. So I like, it's just trying to maintain that same mentality, I guess. Um, but I guess there's always kind of been like a, a question mark over my, over my stroke round ability at times. So to get that done yesterday, um, just unbelievable. It's gives me immense confidence, immense, immense confidence to, to go out there next week and be free and try to, try to take out the, that was the M title. Well, seventy-two hole tournament means best player wins. Uh, you're right up there, mate. You're, one of, you're having one of the best amateur seasons we've ever seen in this country. Congratulations for all you're doing. Uh, it was incredible to watch on the TV. You look like a star to me, uh, and we wish you well in the future. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Good on Thanks you for having me, Harrison Crow. There. Coming up next. If you're worried about how far the ball's going, you might want to have a listen to Professor Steve Otto. You're listening with Mark Allen and Tiffany Cherry. And Marco, it's time now to introduce probably the smartest guest we've ever had on the show, who's regarded as RNA's very own rocket scientist. So, Professor Steve Otto, it's an absolute pleasure to have you as our cherry picked on the Australian Golf Show this week. But before we get into discussion, just want to say what, firstly, welcome. And can you please describe for our listeners what your background with NASA was and exactly what it is you do with the RNA? Well, that's a long time ago. I, I um, worked on very high-speed aircraft for NASA. So lived over in Virginia, but that's, um, yeah, 30 years ago now. So I think they've probably moved on without me. And what about what you're doing with the RNA today, Steve? So I, I look after the organization's technology, but perhaps the purpose of today's call is my role in the equipment standards group. So looking after the equipment rules and um, how the game is governed. Okay, Doug. Well, for I reckon the last 80 or 90 years, there have been calls that the golf ball is going too far for the guys who hit the ball the furthest. Um, I know the statistics are saying that it doesn't go that far for most people who play the game, which I completely agree with. But we've been looking for something for a long time to protect the most classical of golf courses so that they don't become pitch and putt golf courses when the best players come to play. Is there any way uh, with your background of getting a ball that doesn't hurt the medium hitting player but may just hinder the people with 120 miles an hour club head speed? Well, the announcement we made last week is, is trying to do exactly what you're asking there, Mark. So, But it's it's not just the ball. It's a combination of club and ball, and that's um, crucial here. This is a complex problem that requires a complex solution. So the uh, announcement we came out with last week does try to um, perhaps focus on the faster hitting players, have measures across the game, but also the announcement talked about innovation and us perhaps relaxing some rules which should help the slower hitters perhaps gain a little bit of distance, if anything. So what, what sort of things would they be, Professor? So um, the slower swing speed players might actually benefit from softer golf balls, which at the moment wouldn't be allowed because of this restriction we have called the initial velocity test. So we, we're opening up that avenue. Also the avenue to make perhaps clubs more forgiving 
for the slow swing speed players. So we've looked at what we call model local rules. So that's something you can apply just to local competitions or to local venues. And, and one of those would restrict the forgiveness of golf clubs. And if that came in, then we might be able to release that for the rest of the world of golf and they could enjoy drivers that are even more forgiving than the ones they're using today. So so how does that work at the professional level and, and the high amateur level? How, how, how does that work? Will they be using different equipment in those um, metal scratch events that, you know, that I'm talking about the, the biggest in the business, the British amateur, the US amateur and professional golf, will they be limited to the head size? Is that where we're heading? No, it's, it's not a limit on head size. It's a limit on um, forgiveness, which is measured by this mathematical quantity in the moment of inertia, which is basically how much you, you twist. So I don't know if you can remember back to your high school days where they had you standing on a little platform and spinning you around and then you moved your arms in and you spun faster. That That's altering your yes. moment of inertia. So today's bad shots, and I'm sure um, everyone can come up with a, an example of this, but today's bad shots tend to be pushes and pulls rather than hooks and slices. And that's because the club doesn't twist as much. So what this would mean is a model local rule. So that's choice for the game that could be applied um, at the very elite level. That would perhaps make it more of a premium to hit the center of the club. Now, where that comes in the words of your question throughout the game is perhaps up to the game to decide. So looking at the super elite, we'd see this perhaps as a choice for them. When it comes down to you or I playing a uh, a friendly um, pickup game, I'm sure we won't be imposing those rules on ourselves. I don't know if you're elite golfers, but um, it's really about giving choice to the game. So it, it's something on the ball and something on the club and um, trying to get that balance right. But this is just a proposal to sort of make the industry aware that we're interested in this and that we want to be um, getting people's views on what they think of it as options. So rather than anything that's cast in stone. So tell me this, uh, Professor, um, what, what's inspired, wh- where, what's happened? Because, you know, you read literature that Bobby Jones was suggesting the ball was going too far back in his day. Jack Nicholas and Gary Player, they've been calling for the ball to be slowed down uh, for a long, long time. What, what's happened at the RNA and maybe at the USGA that's triggered what we're talking about today? So so in your intro, Mark, you, you talked about um, this being a topic of interest for 80 years. It's actually more like um, 180 years. It really <laughs> goes a lot further back. I, I run the RNA's testing facilities uh, named after a guy called Alan Robertson. Alan Robertson actually saw, sacked old Tom Morris for using the modern golf ball back in the 1840s <laughs> because he thought yeah. it was an abomination. It was going too far. So it's always been a topic of interest. Mm. Uh, and as technology has evolved, We've tried to maintain a single set of rules across the game, and that has led to pressure on both ends of the game. Perhaps the the modern wave of equipment rules started in 1998 with the introduction of the COR rule. And that was really then a move to have more focus on distance. But we've got the statistics going a lot further back. If you roll forward from 1998 onwards, we've been in a mode of reporting all the statistics we can find, how far people are hitting at all levels of the game, how important is distance. And it's that second element that perhaps raised our eyebrows. Distance had been creeping up. There was a a change in distance at the start of the uh, 21st century. But actually, we found that distance was becoming more important. And as people Mm. lengthen golf courses, 
it tended to be longer hitters that were winning. And that thing that where we saw an imbalance in the skills for the game, distance mm. has always been important. You, you talked about Mr. Nicholas there. Mr. Nicholas was a prestigiously long hitter, but he had the, the complement of the other sets of skills. We want to make sure there's a real balance in skills. And that's what really led to us needing to take action. That and the fact, again, referring back to your introduction, that some of the classic courses were becoming perhaps verging on obsolete or needing to be expanded. And in the modern era of sustainability, we wanted to reduce the pressure on golf courses to lengthen. So it's the balance of skills and the reduction on golf courses, the pressure for them to lengthen. Professor, anyone who's gone and got fitted recently for a new set of golf clubs, there's this thing that comes up as smash factor. Um, So if the club's going at 100 miles per hour, if you've hit one right out of the middle, sometimes the ball speed will be 150, 151 miles per hour. Is there any look to um, sharpen that a little bit and maybe bring that down a little bit, or is that something else we're talking about? Yeah, that that also is covered under another um, model local rule within this area of interest. So we've got the moment of inertia one that I mentioned earlier, but also the spring-like effect. So that smash factor is literally sort of you get it from basic physics. The, the optimum you can get to with the current limit is 1.5, so 1.5 times your ball speed, uh, your club speed, giving you ball speed. And there's an interest in whether we might introduce that as a further model local rule to perhaps take the heat out of the central hit for drivers for, again, to be applied at the elite level of the game. So I guess the the million dollar question, the one we all want to know is how far do you plan to hopefully bring things back? Now, I'll give you an example. When I turned professional in, in 1990, I had a wooden driver and my club head speed was 115 miles per hour. Uh, we had the old balls, of course. These days, you know, I'm 53 years old. My swing speed's dropped down to 103, 104. But I feel like I can carry the ball just as far as I did back in, in 1990. So to me, I feel like um, the, the distance with the metal clubs and the titanium shafts and everything that's gone along and the, and the new golf balls i feel like the ball's going i don't know an extra 15 percent further than if i had the same clubs if i had my same clubs and same balls back in the days uh, my 103 miles per hour uh, speed would probably be 100 because it's much heavier and and maybe i'd be only carrying 250 yards instead of the 280 that i used to be able to How, how far do you want to bring it back what a great question and one that um i'm going to use a real politician's answer for yeah, right. it, remains to, it remains to be seen. So that's part of the discussion we're having. That's why we want to engage the industry. Um, we tend to do research behind closed stores. And this area of interest that we released last week is all about engaging with the industry, engaging with some really very smart people at the manufacturing community within the media. Me- media have a good set of opinions to give on this kind of topic. Hmm. We won't be looking at something that's really earth shattering, but at the same time, we want to look at something that's going to give us good protection for that balance of skill and reduction on pressure to lengthen. So it needs to be significant, but not so it's life changing. So if you look back at the the timeline of golf, there was a real increase in distance from the 1990s into the early uh, 2000s. So looking at that all in context, so you cited the wooden club moving to titanium. That was about the same time you went from the wound ball to the modern tour ball. Yep. So looking at that, 
the, the one thing that people will often say to us is that their their point of return is when they played their best golf. So whenever you played your best golf, Mark, it's probably what you would like to rekindle. But um, at the other end of the game, we really like the fact that innovation is there for players. That actually yeah. it keeps people playing. It's it's a fantastic sport that can be played well into your 70s and 80s. And equipment is a big part of that. So yeah. we don't want to be ruining that. And it's all about balance across the game. We're talking about that balance, and it's interesting because I, I agree with you. I think a lot of people want to take it back to when they were at their best. I'm a little bit different, actually. I think golf courses have been lengthened to a point now where we just need to make it almost kind of in between there somehow. I, I, I don't want to go all the way back to, you know, um, my carry was 280, uh, 270 probably with, with the wound ball. I don't want to go all the way back to that because I think golf courses have been lengthened a little bit since those days. And, you know, I look at my golf course, Kingston Heath. Um, the Australian Open tees at Kingston Heath must have put on 400 metres to the golf course, just about from what it used to be uh, when I used to play Australian Opens back in 1990. So it, would that be part of your thinking? Because I, I think it would actually be silly to go all the way back um, to, you know, the, the wound ball and the, the wooden club Jack Nicholas style days. Is there a happy medium that you think will satisfy all comers? I don't think we're ever going to make everyone happy through this process. Um, but actually, the, the way of looking at it isn't just on distance. So distance, some of those holes may have needed lengthening. Some of them, you know, may have turned into wedges for second shots instead of eight irons for second shots. And that then plays into architectural integrity. So what we're doing is looking at this all the time to say, you know, if you take this much off the club and this much off the ball, what would the game look like? What would the balance of skills look like as you go ahead? So it's it's not just a matter of saying, right, we're going to take X percent off. It's looking at that balance idea. So again, using those model local rules to provide choice on the club and how, um, how we change forgiveness balance with the ball. And I'm sure we'll be uh, asking the industry for feedback on that one as we go forward. Steve, where do you think the resistance is going to come from? I'll, I'll give you my ideas. I think uh, the manufacturers, there'll be a little bit of resistance, uh, both of club and of ball. Um, I also think there might be a little bit of resistance from the players with 122 miles per hour clubhead speed. They might be the ones thinking that they've got the most to lose in this situation. That's just my forecast. I mean, I might be completely wrong. You're in a better place. Where do you think the resistance will come from? Thank you for referring to St Andrews as a better place than Australia, but gauging uh, on today's weather, I don't think you're quite right. Don't be but, too um, smart about that. <laughs> the... Um, this is what this process is about. It's about having meaningful conversations with these people. I think people will be genuinely surprised at how much we engage with the manufacturers and how much they're engaged with the process. This is following a well-established process for talking about these kinds of issues. And whilst we don't necessarily always play these out in the public gaze, there are good um, serious conversations going on with all the groups that you mentioned. And we all have the same North Star, the same idea that golf should be thriving 50 years in the future. And, and that's what we're focused on. And, and that sort of balance across the game, the health of the game is what drives us. So although there may be small local disagreements, we're driving towards the same goal.
Okay. Your, your Professor Steve Otto, uh, can I just play, and I'll be Professor Mark Allen just for the next uh, minute or so, just, just for this question. When I see golf ball manufacturers, they have a ball that uh, doesn't spin much and one that does spin. When I hear about players getting on their track man and they tried both balls, the players with 120 miles per hour club head speed, they can get an extra eight to 10 steps, eight to 10 yards just by the different ball when they're using a different spin rate of ball. So I imagine when you're using a ball that spins more, there's obviously going to be a little bit more resistance going through the air, but there's also going to be more hook and more cut and more rising and and, and a whole bunch of different things. Is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as finding a golf ball that spins more with the driver to not only make the ball you know, pull up a little bit, but also bring the turns back, you know, the hooks and the cuts back into the game? Uh, thank you for that question. I'm unfortunately, not quite correct, Professor Allen. Um, <laughs> actually, a higher spinning ball doesn't curve as much. Okay. So actually, it takes more to knock it offline. Um, what it does, it's more affected by the wind. But actually, with modern drivers, as a way of engineering around higher spinning balls. So you could yeah. actually move the center of gravity of the, the club to sort of get round that higher spinning ball. But if we do want to look at more um, cuts and, and slices and hooks, et cetera, in my case, definitely hooks and slices, yeah. that's where you look at the lower moment of inertia change. So people often say you can't work the modern ball. That's not actually correct. You can work the modern ball. Of course you can, yeah. But but it's the modern golf club that has meant it, cur- meant it means it curves less. So that's why we're looking at the moment of inertia as one of the measures here. Right, you can take my professorship away from me. Uh, that was, uh, and I'm, this is why this is why we've got you. When, when I saw you were available, uh, Professor, I was I, I couldn't get you on the program fast enough because a lot of people have their own theories, and I'm trying to speak for everybody here. Um, <sighs> what what what's going to happen next, and how long will it take? do you think before every duck's in a row and you're about to pull the trigger and, and try and bring the game back a little bit? So this, this current process is six months. Yep. Um, I'm already, so my day tomorrow is lined up with conversations with Japanese manufacturers really interested in to see, to see what they thought of the announcement. And one of the questions I'll be asking them is we're opening up the possibility of innovation for you for slower swing speed players. What does that mean to you? What do you think you could do? What kind of project products might you be able to engineer? Mm. That will feed into the timeline. The, the response we get from the industry over the six months will feed into the timeline. So really it's a, a little bit of watch this space. The next stage for us is likely to be a firm proposal on what we envisage the rules potentially becoming. And then there's a further engagement process there. And because this is so significant, I think we'll take our time over that one. But I would hope by this time next year, we'll be coming out back to the industry with something fairly firm for them to evaluate. And you think it's possible? You think it's possible to, well, I'll ask you a different way. How possible is it to get a golf ball and a set of clubs, a set of rules in place for the manufacturers where we're going to see It'll, the game a little bit more difficult for the 120 mile per hour swingers and maybe even a little bit easier for the 90 mile an hour swingers. It's viable. It's definitely possible. Um, it requires buy-in and it requires collaboration across the industry to th- think about this and make sure what we design 
with the industry is viable and um, also sort of it works for people. Hmm. And, and that's a difficult problem to solve. So it, it's not one that we're trivializing. It's not one that we think is going to be easy. We've been doing this, as you said, in your intro for a very long time. Um, yeah, it's definitely viable, but it's not going to be easy. Well, uh, I know this as a fact as we let you go, uh, and, and Tiffany's um, winding me up here. So um, when I went to a golf club manufacturer a long time ago in America, it, it had the brand name, and then underneath the brand name it said, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work here, but it helps. Um, from all the golfers in the world, I think your heart's in the right place, and I'm glad we've got a rocket scientist at the RNA, doing their best for the game. Thanks for your time. No, thanks, Mark. Thanks for your question. Thank you, Professor Steve Otto there. And up next, the Chief Writer for the PGA of Australia, Tony Weeb. Tony, great to have you join us. And I, I want to first up ask, with Harrison Crow handballing the 70K winner's check to Blake Windred, what has that done <laughs> to the order of merit now? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's um, it's certainly thrown the order of merit a few, a few curveballs with Harrison uh, Deflecting, I guess, to Blake Windred and that seventy-two thousand dollars. It's it moved Blake up into third um, oh, wow. in the order of merit, which puts him past Timmy Papadatus at the moment. With uh, we've got four events left to go, but yeah, it's a really exciting. I think it's been a really exciting season in that mm. regard for the order of merit. There's so much on the line. We've got European Tour cards or DP World Tour cards, I should say, and Corn Ferry Tour finals, which I know a number of guys are eyeing off at the end of the year. So the next four events are going to be um, really significant, but yeah, some big moves, obviously, with the uh, extra prize money on offer at the uh, New South Wales Open. Hey, Tony, just uh, it's just been remarkable by the young lady won, Harrison Crow. In- incredible to have won a Victorian amateur, a New South Wales amateur, yeah, a master of the amateurs, a New South Wales amateur. And coming up, we've got the Australian amateur at Cranbourne Golf Club as well. In, in your memory, and you- you've been around golf long enough, has there ever been an amateur season like this they, they couldn't possibly have been not that i can think of maybe going back to like a jason day when he won the callaway world junior and mm. australian yeah. boys junior i know he came second i think at the master of the amateurs which i think harrison also won yeah um earlier in the year i actually liked harrison um last week at up at cypress lakes he'd had a some good results up there at the jack newton junior so i thought he was a bit of a smoky um up there that week, but um, I can tell you he's risen in the world rankings. He's up to 387 in the world before turning professional. He rose 1,304 wow. spots. Holy moly. So he's inside the top 400 and he's not even a pro yet. I want to ask you, Tony, what is the health of the Australian golf at the moment? You're seeing both sides, men and women, because from my perspective, I'm just seeing these talented young players coming through. We've got um, players, you know, in, on the on the big biggest stage, um, winning some of the biggest tournaments that we've got in the game, and they and a lot of them are under the age of thirty. It's to me looking like the next ten years is a really healthy one. It's really significant when a guy like Harrison wins a professional event as an amateur. We've seen guys like Zach Murray um, do it in recent years, and that's a real it's a real indication that that they're going to hit the ground running. Um, and I'm sure Harrison's got a few things to weigh up in the next few months, but it's a nice little box to tick before you turn pro that you've actually had a win against professional competition. Um, we look at the last two male Aussie amateur winners, you know, Louis Dobbelar and Jed Morgan. They're mm-hmm. up and about. They've only yep. been they've been a pro less than a year. They've become household names over the summer. Um, yeah. Grace Kim's turned professional in the last year, and she's competing and 
you know, obviously finished second to Kirsten at the Athena. So the groundswell of these young amateurs, oh, Marco, you might be able to tell me, but I can't remember such a large group both on the men's and women's side mm. that are coming through together and are pushing each other. I think the girls through the yeah. through the players series this year have just elevated their game yep. to such a level. Um, and, you know, we see Steph Kiriakou, like the way that she's sort of, you know, she won an, a professional event mm. as an amateur and then just hit the ground running. It so, is yeah. remarkable, Tony. I've, I've never seen men and women come through like this. I, I can remember, you know, back in my days, like in the 90s and 80s, I think uh, Stuart Appleby won at Queensland Open. We had Robert Ellenby win the Victorian Open and come second in the Australian Open. We had Badley, of course, winning the Australian Open as, as an amateur. Um, but there wasn't this the coverage that I feel like we've got at the moment. Uh, and now with the Australian PGA and Golf Australia, you know, just getting some of these pathways up and going, and I think these pathways are going to develop in the next couple of years as well, develop even further. Um, the opportunity for good players coming through at the moment to springboard into a professional career is enormous. Yeah, I think we're seeing that on the LPGA Tour this year with Miss Steph and Karis Davidson joining Hannah Green, Minji Lee. You know, we think of Hannah now and, and Minji as like the, the veterans on the LPGA Tour and they're only 25, 26 years of age. So, um, yeah, we're going – these pathways are really important, like you say, Marco, and, and we'll see more guys on the Corn Ferry Tour um, progress through to the PGA Tour, Minwoo Lee, Lucas Herbert, Cam Davis. These mm. guys have all just made that next step. And, yeah, there seems like there's a dozen guys – right on their tail, ready to join them. You mentioned Steph Kuriyaku. She finished finished sixth, I think, on the weekend. So some good performances by a couple of the Aussies. Yeah, great start for Steph. She's going to juggle. I guess she's got her LPGA Tour status now. So um, good to see her start the year with a a top 10 on the Ladies European Tour. And and Curtis Luck. Yeah. Yeah, That's absolutely huge. Your first tournament to come sixth is enormous. Yeah, it was Mm. probably a quieter... You know, she was so unlucky. She was so excited to play the WPGA at Royal Queensland and then went down with COVID on the Tuesday. So that was a bit of a disruption for, for Steph. But, yeah, probably didn't pop up in the player series like we might have expected. But, yeah, to hit the ground running again. And then Curtis Lux had a great result. You know, he's a bit of an enigma, Curtis. He sort of uh, – <laughs> he just bobs up every now and again and almost wins a thing. He Two years ago he won – Great name. Yeah, absolutely. it is a great and, and great talent. Like you know, yeah. but he's one of those guys, Marco. They come along, um, they either win or they just don't feature. And Curtis is, just seems to be one of those guys that when he's in the mood, um, he shot sixty six in the first round this week and uh, on the Corn Ferry Tour, and with a half dozen holes to go, he was one shot off the lead and contending again. So uh, finished tied fifth. It was his best result since he won two years ago. So. Um, hopefully that's another springboard for Curtis to have a good season and, and get back to the PGA Tour next year. It wouldn't be an Australian golf show podcast without a Western Australian getting the, his name in lights. <laughs> it's been incredible. that They've had the greatest run of all time. It's actually nice to see a couple people from New South Wales uh, get up there at the top with uh, with uh, the what we saw at the New South Wales Open. Yeah, they've got to share it around every now and again. Hey, I wanted to ask you, um, we've got obviously footies back in and uh, people are talking about, the, you know, their footy tippings. It's all part of the the workplace, uh, you know, standing around the, the water cooler or whatever they say around the coffee machines. What about having tipping for um, on the in the Australian golf scene? Oh, I think, yeah, this is something I've had some exposure to in the past. Steve Kuyper and I we were running a, a, a PGA Tour tipping comp and basically you put your tip in each week and, um, you got whatever prize money your player won for that week and um, it was a cum- cumulative total at the end of the year and 
some prize money to be won at the end. And there's no reason, I don't think, now that we've sort of back up and running, we can't, you know, we've got maybe 15, 14, 15 events mm. we've had on the Australasian tour this season. So, and the order of merit and what's at stake generates its own interest as well. So, um, yeah, I'd love to see us. Maybe there's something that for us to uh, to nut out over the next yeah. six months and um, yeah, get by the time the first event. What about a off. prize? What about a prize of the Masters? That'd be pretty impressive. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you'd want to you'd want to go in it, wouldn't you? <laughs> if, if you had a couple of tickets to Augusta or something like that, you know, maybe uh, even a couple of tickets to the Open or something, you'd have a thousand people uh, picking three players every single week. It'd be, it, w- it would be great, Tony. I'm, I'm going to live with you, Tony. It's your little project to get up right. and going. I'll talk to my people. Well, thank you very much, Tony. Great to have you on the show, and uh, we're giving Blakey a little bit of a rest. But he'll be back again next week. But really appreciate all your insights. And up next, we'll have Marco's masterclass. Looking forward to this one. It is now time for Marco's masterclass. Marco, I told you that I played off yesterday. I did sink a uh, a long putt thanks to a little bit of your tips uh, <laughs> earlier in the year. But um, but uh, but I did miss a few. So I believe that you've got a few more tips tonight. Well, I was that impressed with the way both um, Harrison Crow and Blake Windred putted. I've seen Blake before, and you've picked this up yourself. Remember when Blake putts and he pulls his shirt and yep. tucks it under his left arm? This yep. is a beautiful thing for one, staying connected. But what is in what, what was really impressive, and it's a little bit new in putting these days, is that once upon a time there was a lot of acceleration for putting and, you know, a big long follow-through just to mm. keep the putter going down the track. That's all been turned on its head now that we've got, you know, all these gadgets for judging how a golf ball rolls. Mm. Uh, in fact, we've got players out there on tour now who are suggesting that pop putting, which means a shorter follow-through, is actually a better way to do it. And when they get their golf ball readings, you know, on, on the computers that they use, um, it's actually suggesting that the ball rolls better that way as well. Now, Tiger Woods has been doing this for a long time. One of the great things about watching Tiger Woods putt live, especially on the practice putting green before he plays, he's got this magnificent toe release. So what happens when you take the club back, a putter back on the inside, the putter opens up a little bit, you hit the ball, and then the toe closes over and you follow through. Tiger has been genius at this. And a lot of people have tried to manipulate the club head themselves to try and make it happen, but it never works ever. What these two guys do, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if the same putting coach is teaching them, when you keep your left arm next to your rib cage when you putt, it automatically shortens your follow-through. And if your uh, hand tension is light, then as your arms slow down, the momentum of the putter head goes through and you get this beautiful toe release. Mm. So what Blake Windred and also you can really see Harrison Crow doing it as well. He keeps his left arm really close to his rib cage, even on the long putts. But it just one, it does two things. It keeps you connected. It makes everything turn at once. And the other thing it does is you get that beautiful toe release, which is so important when you're putting, when you've got an inside-to-inside putting stroke. So have a look what the guys do. Uh, I'll post it on the uh, Australian Golf Show podcast Twitter link. You'll see it uh, a little bit later. Um, and I'll tell you what, it's a great way to hold more putts. Can't wait. I'm going to pull out my titleist. I'm going to practice tomorrow. Thank you. See you next week. See you next week, Tiff.